Many years ago, in fact, as I started thinking about this, it's been quite many years ago, there was an article in the U.S. News and World Report, um, a cover story that was dedicated to the subject of hell. And it's interesting, it came out of the scientific section of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, but in January, on January 31st in the year 2000, there was an interesting article, and I don't have the whole article up here, but just the beginning of it, uh, where this uh, guy by the name of Jeffrey Seller talked about how people looked at hell in the United States. And one of the things that was surprising to him was how many people in the United States believed in hell. In fact, according to his survey, according to his um, polling, if you will, over 64% of Americans living in the United States believed in hell. And another thing that was interesting about that is that that statistic was higher than what it was 10 years ago. It was higher than what it was 50 years ago. In fact, he predicted that if the trend continued and as time went on, that more and more people would believe in hell. But here's the thing that was unusual about this particular belief. In fact, you notice the name of the article. It says, Hell hath no fury. What was odd about the study that he had done, and the article pointed this out, was that there were more people who believed in hell, but what hell really was and how long hell was and if there really was a place of torment, then everybody's opinion began to change. There were people who believed that hell was just here on this earth. There were people who believed that hell was just a personal hell that you dealt with, maybe with your thoughts or your circumstances. There were people who believed that there was hell, but it didn't last for a very long period of time. There were people who believed there was hell, but there really wasn't no place that was set aside, especially for people to die. And he thought it was interesting, and one of the reasons why he wrote the article is how that people believed that there was something called hell, but they really didn't believe that it was a place of punishment like what the Bible says. And of course, that's not unusual because even in our religious world today, there are religious people, religious uh, groups of people who don't believe in what the Bible says about hell. For example, the Christian science group believes that heaven and hell are states of thought, not places. People experience their own heaven or hell right here on earth. The Mormons, they argue that the false doctrine that, pun that the punishment is to be visited upon the erring souls is endless is at once unscriptural, unreasonable, and revolting. The Jehovah's Witnesses put it this way. They believe, as if you've ever talked to any of them before, they maintain that the wicked are annihilated because the teaching about a fiery hell can be rightly be designated as a teaching of demons. So we see both in the secular world and also in the religious world, there are people who know that there is something in the Bible that is named hell, but there are people who believe that it's really not a bad place as we maybe have been told. Folks, this morning, I want to talk to you about the subject that hell is real and you do not want to go there. You do not want to go there. 
We're going to build our case point upon point, both from Scripture and from logic, that hell is real, and you do not want to spend eternity there. The very first thing I want you to think about as we think about that hell is real, we know hell is real because of the fact the Bible says hell is real. Now, if we're going to take the Bible at face value, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that if the Bible is correct in some places, it's going to be correct in all places. If the Bible is going to say something that is true that we want to believe, then we need to make sure we believe the things that maybe perhaps aren't very pleasant to us and we do not want to believe. The same Bible that talks about all the beautiful promises, all the beautiful and wonderful things about heaven is also the very same Bible that talks about the awfulness, the horrendousness, anything that has to do with those things that pertaining to hell and how awful they are, the Bible also talks about that particular place. It's interesting, Paul points this out in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22 when he says, Behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. And he goes on to explain that those There are things that will happen to people who are saved because God is good and there are things that are going to happen to people because they are wicked because God also is severe. God is a God of love, but He's also a God uh, of justice. God is a God that wants to save mankind, but God is also someone who needs to punish the wicked. And therefore, as you go through God's Word, we are pointed out how that there are two sides to everything. That if we're going to believe what the Bible says about heaven and the promises and the blessings of salvation, we also need to believe the promises and the justice or punishment of a place called hell. We always think about Jesus being a very loving and merciful Savior, and certainly He is. But it was this same loving and merciful Savior that told us that there's going to be many people who spend eternity in hell. You remember what he said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 when he said that that broad is the way and wide is the gate that leadeth to destruction. The same Jesus talking about how that men shouldn't fear other men who can just kill the body. But he reminds us in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 that God is both able to destroy the body and the soul in hell. It's the same Jesus who in Matthew chapter 25 when he gave us the great picture of the judgment scene, when all nations appeared before the throne of God, and it talks about how that he divided up the people into the right hand and to the left hand, the sheep and the goats. And you know how in verse 47, how at the conclusion of this judgment day, there were those who had everlasting life and those who had everlasting punishment. We need to understand and appreciate the fact that hell is real because the Bible says hell is real. And if we believe the Bible at all, we need to believe all of it. We do not just pick and choose what we want to believe. And just because there's a beautiful place called heaven doesn't mean there's not a horrible place called hell. But then you add to this this particular thought. Hell is real because justice demands that there be punishment. Think about that for a few moments. Dwell on that. Imagine if we lived in a world where there was never any ultimate justice. 
Imagine a scenario in this world where there was never an opportunity for rights to be righted and wrongs to be taken care of, people to be punished that needs to be punished. Think about the world we live in and think about the fact that uh, there are those who engage in some things, say, for example, child abusers, that maybe they never ever get caught, maybe their crime is kept silent because of families, because of other things, and yet it, they seem to get away with this particular crime, and we live in a world and we think, well, they are they ever never going to be punished? Is there never ever going to be any justice? When you think about other people who mistreat other people, when you think about crimes that go unsolved, when you think about how that even in a a simple personal way, how somebody may have attacked you personally and maybe said some wrong things about you and maybe did some things to you that they never ever were punished for, where is the justice there? You think about people who actually literally get away with murder in this life. Where is the justice? When you think about starting at one end, the people like Hitler who were on the face of this earth and people who are the secret sinners that are now on the face of the earth or in the past, and you think about them and you've got to be thinking about the fact, where is the justice? If there's no ultimate punishment, if there's no ultimate justice, if the wrongs can I ever be made right, This life becomes very unbearable, very hard. But the Bible tells us that there is going to be an ultimate punishment. Passage that Frank read for us from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Solomon is pointing this very thing out. He's saying, you know, people go through life and because their judgment is not executed upon them right away. In other words, they're allowed to keep on sinning. They're allowed to keep being involved in what they're involved in. Uh, Then they think, well, everything's going to be fine. There's no punishment. I've gotten away with it is the point of the text. Solomon goes on on and says, you know, it even seems unfair. There's no justice because it seems sometimes there are those who are living horribly, but yet their days are prolonged. And then there are those who are living as righteous as they can live, and then maybe their days don't seem as long. In other words, the wicked are being blessed, the righteous are not being blessed. But then he brings it all home. And he points out thinking this way is just emptiness, it's just foolishness, because it's all about fearing God. They may get away with it in this life, but in the life to come, they will not get away with it. God will be vindicated. God's people will be vindicated. God is a God of love, but He is also a God of justice. And His justice demands that sinners be punished. And so we know hell is real because justice demands that there be punishment. But then when you add this to it, think about it from a logical standpoint. Not only does justice demand that there be punishment, but there needs to be a punishment worse than death. If there is truly going to be justice done and crimes are going to be paid for and sin is going to be dealt with, then there has to be a punishment worse than death. Here's the reason why. All of us die. 
Death, if that is even a punishment, even if a, command, a condemned man on death row is put to death on death row, all he has done is died. All of us die. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 points out the fact that it is appointed unto man once to die. In other words, how is it a punishment if the only ultimate punishment is death? Say you committed the worst crime the world has ever seen. Think about the most heinous thing that a person can do. And you stand before the judge and the judge says, because of what you've done, I'm going to take your life. I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to hang you on a tree. I'm going to put you before a firing squad. I'm going to even skin you alive. But the time will come when that punishment will end. Because eventually that person will die. And once they're dead, the punishment is over. And they have met the same fate that every single person on the face of this earth is going to meet. Folks, even the innocent die. An innocent baby dies sometimes. People who are living the most righteous life they could possibly live, they die. Look at Jesus Christ. And so there has to be something more than the simple ultimate punishment that someone can give someone here on this earth. There has to be a worse punishment than just simply death. And I believe that the hell, that hell is real because there has to be a worse punishment than death. It's interesting as you go through the Bible, this is brought out and sometimes you have to read through between the lines. But notice what Jesus is saying here when he says these words. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, he's using hyperbole to make a point. But he is saying that hell is a, such a worse punishment than man could ever imagine. Hell is such a terrible place that even if you had to be involved in self-mutilation to keep from going there. In other words, Jesus is saying go to whatever extreme you can possibly think of to keep from going to hell because there is a punishment worse than death. There is a punishment even than plucking out your own eye. Imagine that. Jesus says it's worth doing that than spend eternity in hell. He also says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into the life halt or maim rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. In other words, he's, he's not advocating that we start maiming ourselves, but his point is, the thing he is illustrating is, that hell is such a punishment that it's better to do these things than to be cast into that everlasting fire. We could go on, and Jesus also says, Fear not them which kill the body, are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then there are these haunting words in the book of Hebrews. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment suppose ye? 
Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The point the writer of Hebrews is making here, that here on this earth, under the law of Moses, people were put to death. People were punished. They were severely punished here on this earth. Think of how much more sore the punishment will be that has been designed by God to be the ultimate punishment. I believe that hell is real because there needs to be a punishment worse than death. But then we can also add to this, I believe hell is real because sinners need to be separated from God. There's a reoccurring theme that happens in the Bible from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. And that is God is holy. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 reminds us that there is none more holy than God. You get to the book of Revelation, there's scene after scene where even the angels of heaven are saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the emphasis is that we serve a God who is a holy God. That means He is sanctified. That means He is set apart. That means that He is someone who can have nothing to do with sin. In fact, when you get to Proverbs chapter 6, and you start reading there how that in verse 16 it starts talking about how that there are things that are sins that are abominations to God. There are six things he mentions. And he says, yea, seven, pointing out this is complete, this is perfection, this is how God looks at sin. And he goes on and he names different things, a proud look, a lying tongue, and, and, and those who will take uh, innocent blood. And it's interesting, the very last one, the seventh one, is the one who will, uh, who will cause discord in the Lord's family. But notice what the text says. It says that he thinks of that as being an abomination. Abomination is something you can't tolerate. Abomination is something that you can't be near because it just so disgusts you. It just so turns your stomach, if you will. You've heard me use this illustration before, but an abomination would be us driving to church this morning on the side of the road. We saw a dead possum that had been in the sun for several days, and his body was bloated, and maggots were coming all out of it, and it was rotting, and it was stinking, it was filthy, and you got out of your car, and you grabbed a fork, and you stuck it in there and took a bite of that. The very thought of that is an abomination to you. Because it's so disgusting, you don't want to smell it, you don't want to be near it, because it is awful. That is how God looks at sin. And so there needs to be a separation from God. There needs to be somehow or another to get rid of the fact that sin cannot be in the presence of God. And so there needs to be a place that takes care of that. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2, God makes this particular statement. He says, my hand is not so short that I can't save you. Or is my ears dull of hearing that I can't hear you? But your sins and iniquities have separated you from me. 
And so there needs to be a place where sinners can be separated from a holy God. Paul's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He makes mention of the fact that one of the things that will happen will be angels coming with flaming fire and how that they will be everlastingly destroyed from the presence of the Lord. There needs to be a separation between God and sinner and the time will come when that ultimate separation will take place. A holy God cannot tolerate the abomination that's known as sin in His presence and therefore He needs to separate that from Him. There needs to be a separation as I think about that, I think about the place, how the fact that, that hell is really going to be a God-forsaken place. Because those who spend eternity in hell, in hell will spend eternity separated from God. We think of God being a God of peace, but in hell there will be no peace. We think of God being a God of comfort, but in hell there will be no comfort. We think about God being a God of hope, But in hell, because we are separated from God, there will never, ever be any hope again. I believe hell is real because there needs to be a place where sinners will be separated from a holy God. But let's add one final thing to consider. I believe that hell is real because no one should want to go there. As you go through the Bible... The Bible describes hell as a very terrible place. And one of the reasons why I think it's so vivid in its description is because it wants to impose upon our minds and upon our hearts and soul that this is a place you don't want to go. There's nothing about it that should be attractive to you. There's nothing about it that should make you say, well, that's okay, I want to go there. There's nothing about it that say, well, you know, why worry about it? There's nothing that I need to worry about this. It's really not that bad of a place. But just listen to and see some of the things that the Bible, how it describes this hell and why we should not want to go there. It talks about it being the blackness of darkness forever. It talks about how that it's eternal damnation talks about how this everlasting punishment. It talks about how it's fiery indignation. It talks about how it's a furnace of fire. It talks about how it's a lake of fire and brimstone. It talks about how there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. It talks about how it is the second death. It talks about how there's going to be everlasting shame and contempt talks about how there's going to be torment day and night forever. talks about how there's going to be an unquenchable fire. Now we look at those pictures in the Bible and we read those verses and we think about the picture that they paint. And we need to appreciate and understand the fact that even with those word pictures in the Bible, that hell is more horrible than human language can describe. Think about that for a moment. When we talk about heaven, when we read about the description of heaven, 
When we read what the Bible says about how wonderful and how beautiful heaven will be, it uses some descriptors that we know is not really the case of heaven. I don't really believe when I get to heaven there's going to be streets that are paved with gold. I believe that's symbolic. I don't believe there's going to be this four-square city with all these different jewels stuck in the wall um, showing all the different beautifulness of it. I don't think that is literal. I think that is figurative. But the point of what the Bible is doing there when it's describing heaven is trying to, in our cognitive ability, our human minds, to be able to appreciate something that cannot be put into human words. When Paul was called up in the third heaven and he came back from being having that vision of being called up where God is in, in the heavenly realm, he says, there are things that I saw that I can't utter. And I gather from that is there's no way that he could describe it. And so when the Bible paints the beautiful pictures of what it paints about heaven, I believe it's describing for us in words that only we and our finite human minds can understand and appreciate. The point is that heaven is going to be the most wonderful, the most special, the most beautiful, the most wondrous thing that we have ever experienced. And here on this earth, our mind can't fully grasp what that's going to be like. But folks, if the Bible does that with heaven, it's certainly going to do that with hell. I don't know if heaven's going to be a place that is full of... Uh, turn me down, just let me pick up some feedback. Or something else is on, either this mic or this mic. Thank you. There you go. Um, I don't believe that hell maybe is going to be a literal lake of fire and brimstone. I don't know if it, the things that the Bible describes is, as far as hell is concerning is a literal situation like what, what we just saw on the screen here. But I also believe that the Bible is talking about something that is so horrible, that is so awful, that the human mind can't fully grasp it, that it can't fully comprehend it. And so it has to paint word pictures of the most horrible, terrible things we can think of. And it puts those word pictures in the Bible just to get us a glimpse of what that is like. Folks, hell is a real place, and you don't want to go there. I think it's fitting as we close our lesson this morning that we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. For the writer of Hebrews says, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedient received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Notice what the writer of Hebrews says here. If things that happened in the Bible in the past took place, if God really did punish people, just think about how bad it's going to be in eternity when God punishes people. And so he makes this very important point, and what I really want us to dwell on this morning, and that is, if we neglect so great salvation. Everything I've said to you this morning is very negative. Anytime a preacher talks about hell, it's a negative sermon. Nobody wants to hear about hell. Preachers don't like to talk about hell. In fact, very few preachers even talk about hell anymore. The word pictures that we put up on the screen today, they're not pleasant to look at. 
I purposely did not leave them on the screen very long for that reason. But the point we need to understand and appreciate this morning is, yes, there really is a hell and there's no one that really would want to go there. But the point of the matter is, none of us have to go there. The text talks about a great salvation. The salvation of Jesus Christ because He was willing to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And if we're willing to put our faith and trust in Him and in His blood and His redeeming sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, we don't have to spend eternity in hell. All we simply have to do is predicate it upon this faith and upon our repentance and our confession, be baptized in the watery grave of baptism to wash away our sins. Who in their right mind would not take advantage of that? When you think about hell as a real place, when you think about how that no one, no one would want to go there, how in the world would you neglect so great salvation? when you don't have to spend eternity in hell, when you can have all your sins forgiven regardless of what they have been in the past, when you have the continual cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, who in their right mind would give that up to spend eternity in hell? It defies logic. It defies human reasoning. And it's no wonder the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It began with the Lord. He tells us about a beautiful place called heaven. He also warns us about the terribleness of hell. But he also reminds us, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all ye that are labored and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same Jesus tells us in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And of course after him the apostles confirmed that what Jesus said was true. Even when you think about the apostle Paul when he was converted... You remember how that Ananias, the preacher, came to him and said, Saul, why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Such a great salvation. We can have our sins washed away. We can put, continue to put our faith and trust in God and have those sins continue to be taken care of. And we get to spend eternity in heaven with the redeemed of all the ages and be in the presence of God place that is so beautiful that uh, our minds and words can't fully describe it. But that being the case, why in the world would anybody want to spend eternity anywhere else? Folks, hell is real. And no one, absolutely no one, wants to spend eternity there. If you have not put on Jesus Christ in baptism today, if you... I have not done those things that are necessary to bake yourself in a right relationship with God. Please, this morning, don't neglect that great salvation as together we stand and sing.